In 1 Kings chapter 10, the house of the Lord has been done. The house, uh, his personal house has been done. The temple has been now inaugurated. Uh, the people have been blessed. According to the Chronicles that also chronicle the same events, um, it says that the fire of the Lord came down and consumed the sacrifice. The focus in 1 Kings was more on the, on the, the uh, cloud, if you will, of God's glory. Uh, and uh, in Chronicles, more the fire that consumes the sacrifice. And from there... Solomon prays and he prays, Lord, I recognize you're much bigger than this box is ever going to be able to fit you in. But would you please let this be a place your your heart and eyes are attentive to? And he says, and if we would turn to this place, would you hear from heaven your dwelling place? And when you hear, forgive. And God says, sure, but I'm going to make a deal with you. If you walk in the in the fullness of heart, in other words, if you follow me with a full heart and you go after me and you keep my commandments, you guard them. Well, then great things are going to come about, just as you asked, First Kings 9, 4 through 7. But instead, and when we saw that downward spiral, if you retreat, you turn away, and you go after other gods, you walk after them, and you find yourself serving them, you hand yourself over to the service to them, and then find yourself worshiping them, well, you'll see that those blessings and those temptations, well, they're going to be, all the blessings I give you now will actually be pulled away to the point where this place that is meant to be an example for others to turn to now will serve as a warning. And from that, we move into this place where Solomon is now receiving fantastic wealth. We are actually at the apex of the Israeli, uh, we're really kind of Israel as a nation. They've never been more prosperous. They've never been more safe in essence as they are at this moment. They've never been wealthier. And that takes us to chapter 10. And what we start to see again are those leaks in a heart that isn't fully following God. And we're going to find that that becomes the problem, by the way, with Solomon. We'll read later, and we'll see that by next uh, next week, God willing, that the reason that Solomon turns away from the Lord in the end of it all is he just did not fully commit. His heart was there. His heart sort of like his heart was in it for a bit, but he just was, heart not, was not fully in it. And that was what God said. If you really want to do this right, I'm going to need all your heart. Not just parts. And what we're going to see is that we have two simple situations here, and we're going to have a warning, a couple warnings in between them. And I'm just want us to take the warnings this chapter gives us. I mean, it's amazing because we often tend to look at David as this monster often because of some of the horrible things he's done. And then we look at Solomon like he's kind of the, the man. And really, to be honest, David, for all of his faults, still was somebody that was still after God's own heart. I think that shut down again, Bruno. And uh, on the other side of it, Solomon was a guy who we just watched in steady decline of following the Lord. It was horrible. And we can learn from this that in David's case, we can watch somebody that falls in love with God and does stupid things, but then goes, man, what's wrong with me? And he goes back to the Lord. And there's something really encouraging about that. But then we can look at Solomon and what we see is a guy that was blessed and he seems to make these grandiose statements. But in the end, by the time he's done, the guy's just going to be a casualty. And I don't want that said of any of you. I don't want it to be said that... There was a time where Noreen was in love with Jesus or Marcy was just charging or, or Angel or, oh, you could just see the passion. But then somehow that was for a temporary moment. And those that say, oh, it's a phase would actually say, yeah, it probably was. Unfortunately, it was only one generation from the greatest king Israel's ever known 
to a son who's going to, in essence, really fall away hard. And we see bits of that here. So God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, cause your scripture to burst open and come alive for us and teach us tonight, Lord. Teach us and warn us where we need to be warned, each one of us where we need to be warned, that we would not find ourselves the casualty of this. Please. So Lord, we commit our time to you now. Redeem every second in Jesus' name. Amen. Like always, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true, but search the scriptures. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 1 says, Now when the queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a great retinue, very great retinue, with camels that bore spices, very much gold, precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke to him all that was in her heart. Now, who's the queen of Sheba? Well, there's two basic standard kind of comments, you know, people that are like really smart with glasses at the bridge of their nose or whatever, that uh, that really kind of come up with their ideas on that. That reminds me, maybe I'll do that just for tonight. Because I can. Now I get to try to look smart too. How cool is that? See, Don't, you know, don't buy it. It's just an act. Oh, whoa, look at that. Um... The two traditional views on it, of course, are, I mean, Sheba, for the most common, would be that she's the queen of Ethiopia. As a matter of fact, they even have a name for her in Ethiopia. Uh, uh, interesting, though, what we do read is that she is the Malach Shiva, the, the queen of Shiva. Interesting, I remind you, Solomon's mom's name is Bat Shiva, which means daughter of a covenant. And this woman is the queen of a covenant. Shiva means covenant. Interesting as it is. Uh, Josephus the uh, Jewish historian would say that it's from Ethiopia to Egypt. Uh, there is another guy, by the way, Fiastorgus, who would actually say in his history, Ecclesiastes 1, 3, chapter 4, that it's from Yemen to Ethiopia. They always seem to meet in Ethiopia for what it's worth. Her name, as far as the Ethiopians are concerned, is actually Mekweda. Mekweda, by the way, we have that in Ludolf, Ethiopian history, for what it's worth as well, issue 2, chapter 3. Um, that According to the story, she had a merchant, and his name was, was Tamarinus. And Tamarinus had gone to uh, Israel and had discovered the wisdom of Solomon and comes back and tells Mequetta the story. The story is, wow, you should meet this guy. He is this is brilliant. Now, the Queen of Sheba, for what it's worth, tends to be the gal that everyone kind of knew for this wisdom. So because she was this kind of gal that was known for her wisdom, she's kind of, think about it, this is a bit of competition here for her. And it's kind of a weird thought. So she's going to go and check him out. Now, for what it's worth, whether it be that near Yemen or whether that be near Ethiopia, she travels somewhere between 1,200 to 1,400 miles to see him. It's quite a bit of distance. God had promised, by the way, these kind of things would happen when he gave him such wisdom. And she came as a king would come to another king with a gift. Uh, traditionally, notice it says here she bore spices and gold and precious stones. Traditionally, when a king comes, they bring gold. If it's to a king that they consider greater or is viewed as greater, they offer gold and something from their own country. You know, so consider that they're bringing a gift. Uh, you know, so they come and they bring. You know, they bring. If in essence they bring cash. 
and they bring a Starbucks mug with their, you know, city on it, that kind of thing. It's, you know, that's kind of the idea. Now, Solomon, for what it's worth, will write, I don't know if you know this, he writes two psalms within the 150 psalms recorded in the book of Psalms. One is 72, and one is 127. It's easy to remember, especially if you're a bit dyslexic like me, because they're kind of reverse of each other. And it tells us in that particular verse in uh, Psalm 72, in verse 10, that the kings of Tarshish and the, isle of, uh, and the Isles will bring presents, and the kings of Shiva and Siva will offer gifts. It tells us in verse 15 of that same psalm that the gold of Shiva will be given to the king. Solomon, by the way, is writing that for what it's worth. Now, as far as Ovington voyage, and again, I'm only giving you a couple of historians and what they write in his particular um, account he would actually say that the area from which she is from is famous for certain things. And again, the idea is she's going to bring issues, spices and perfumes and such, a balsam, cassia, manna, dates, gold, but it's also known for their pearls and for their frankincense and for their myrrh. And I think that's interesting because frankincense, you may be aware of, is used not only as an incense, but it's used as a medicine. It's used as a spice. Now, for what it's worth, a couple of places just to kind of look at to kind of see that how this is preparing us ultimately for Jesus. In Psalm six, I'm sorry, Isaiah 60, verse 6, it tells us that the multitude of camels will cover your land, dromedaries from Midian and Ephah, and all those from Shiva shall come, and they shall bring gold and incense and proclaim the praises of the Lord. Now, we know this is all setting us up, right? It tells us in Jeremiah 6, 20, that for the purpose comes frankincense from Shiva. Sweet cane is far country, and the idea of that, of course, is sugar and such. For burnt offerings are not acceptable. No, your sacrifice is sweet to me. And I get the idea. It's like you're bringing these things, but they're not blessing me just because you're doing them unless your heart's with me. Now, all of that to say this, that you chase it another thousand years, or a little less than a thousand years, and kings are going to come from the east. And as they come from the east... They're going to bring gifts, and the gifts they bring, of course, are gold, because that's what a king brings to a greater king, and things from their own country, in their case, frankincense and myrrh. Now, for your own personal investigation, sort of, you know, as we start rounding the corner to look in the distance at the Christmas season, believe it or not, we're in August now. Am I the only one that's kind of in shock over that? And I always thought August was the hottest month. Yeah, notice how you laughed. Uh, in, in Genesis 34, you're probably aware of the fact that Abraham, after Sarah dies, has more kids. He, he marries again. Now, I don't know about you, but there's a part of me that thinks the guy's in his 110s, 120s. The girl's a gold digger. Uh, you know, she's marrying a guy. And he has a bunch of kids with her. And sends them, one of them, by the way, is a son named Midian, and sends them east with gifts. And the prophecy is that one day those kids would return bringing gifts. So should it surprise me that when Jesus is born, that wealthy men from the east come bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Shouldn't surprise me at all. And we're being set up for it here. Now, back in our situation here, Solomon King. Now, understand, at this point, he's known for his wisdom. And that's what she comes to see. She doesn't just come to watch things and check things out. She comes because people are asking her questions, and some of them are stumping her, and she wants to find the answers. And she's like, huh, there's a guy out there that's rumored to be able to answer questions I cannot answer. 
And so she dumps these questions on him. And it tells us in verse 3 that Solomon answers all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he couldn't explain it to her. And how weird would that be? And so she's inspecting the king. And as she's inspecting the king, this is what we read. And, and this is kind of the crux of our witness to a world out there that's inspecting our king. They're going to come with questions. Now, let's be honest. Some of the questions are just because they don't think they can answer them themselves. But some of the questions are questions of their own heart. And part of the issue when we're seeking to share Jesus with someone is to get to those questions. Because the questions that are really burning in a person's heart are the questions that are going to change them when they get answered. And you think, I can't handle that responsibility. I don't want to be the person to answer those questions. Here's the good news. God's the one who's going to answer. Excuse me. He's just looking for a mouthpiece. Because if God just started speaking from this guy, chances are they would just pass out and die anyways. He needs to speak in a more natural means to a person who's actually trying to find out about him. And you get to be that person. You're a much more natural means. And it is amazing how, and I pray you've had this experience, where someone asks you a question that you are completely ill-equipped to answer. But somehow in all of that, you do. The words come out of your mouth. And you ever have that happen where the Lord speaks and then you're like, ooh, that was good. I hope I remember that next time. There's something amazing about God using you like that. And they ask, when they really know you care, they ask questions like, hey, listen, my mom was raped and I was the product of that. How could there be a God if that kind of thing would happen? And, and you say, uh, Lord, how do you want to answer this? And something comes out of your mouth like, the reason you're asking me is because your mother didn't choose to have you aborted. Aren't you thankful for that? It's easier to see the bad in a situation than the good that comes from it. And, the, and that doesn't remove the bad. But we're always looking for bad moments and going, well, how could there be a God? It's interesting. Couldn't we just go, how about this great moment and this moment? How could there not be a God if such a thing? So what if they're inspecting us? And don't they have a right to? To look at our lives and go, what about? Well, look at what she looks at here, by the way. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight things. The first thing it says in verse four is when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon. The first thing, wisdom, by the way, is in your decisions. It's described, it's information properly applied. Now we're aware of the fact in James one, it tells us if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to us liberally and without reproach. Just ask in faith without doubting. Now, understand, without reproach means he's not going to yell at you for asking him. And it isn't just without reproach. It's without limit. God will give you more wisdom than you need. You're like, I have this information. I don't know what to do with it. God says, well, then seek me, and I'll gladly give it to you. When she sees the decisions Solomon is making, she's watching this. If the people that know you as a Christian see the decisions you are making... Will they be convinced your God's good? Will they can be convinced that you believe that God is good by the decisions you make? The second is the house that he had built. They see his home life. 
So if a person were to see you here and then see you at home, would they see a different person? Would they see somebody that seems like they've got their holy hallelujah on and the outside, but when they get home, it's kind of really not holy and there's no hallelujah going on? Because let's be honest, if that's the case, then they've got to know, they've got to think it's a show because you're giving them one. The third is the food at the table. How about your appetites? How are they being met and are they being fully met? Or do we find, I mean, face it, one of the things that every human being has is a hunger inside of them, a craving, and they don't even know what for. It's just hungry. There's something inside. It's like, I gotta, this has got to be met, and I don't even know how to meet it because I'm not even sure what it is. And then we say Jesus meets at every corner and fills us to overflowing, and they have a right to look, don't they? And do they see those things met? Or do they see us still chasing after the same things they are, just as vehemently? But not just the food at the table, the seating of the servants and the service of those waiters. Do they see a value in service and a value in the servants who serve? Because that's actually what, I mean, think about it. I mean, normally, and by the way, you can probably find this, well, I can tell you in almost every place we've gone in Africa that we've seen a lot of this sort of, you know, kind of social stratifying, if that makes sense, stratifying, where it's sort of like there's a caste system without even being spoken. There's the servants, and they're always less of a human being than the people who are kind of in charge. And if she comes from that kind of world, and then she goes and she sees that Solomon is honoring his servants, and she also sees their apparel. In other words, he is like, he's blessing them with decent clothes. It's, it's, they're not just running around ratted and just working themselves to death. He's really taking care of these guys and he's honoring them for their service. And you realize he's like, wow, if somebody, I mean, let's face it, one of the reasons people might be hesitant to serve is because if they feel like if they start to serve, they're just going to be so low on a social strata because that's what they're used to. And yet in the kingdom of heaven, the servants are the greatest. Doesn't he say that whoever wants to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven needs to be a servant of all now. But that doesn't work in this world, does it? Being a servant of all now doesn't make you great in the sight of anyone except the people who are being served if they're actually being kind enough and wise enough to recognize that what you're doing is so good. But for the most part, if you're just serving people, most of the time you just get walked on and overlooked. And then we read in Scripture, oh, well, God says such a person is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. No wonder why everyone wants to be a boss here. Because if you're a boss here, well, wow, you can get that, right? Then everyone here applauds you. But the queen comes with that mindset. And as she comes, I realize what the problem is. This likes to um, the queen comes with this thing. And what she starts to observe is she watches the decisions Solomon makes. And she watches his home life and how his house is. She sees how the hungers uh, and the appetites are being met fully. She sees the way that servants are really uh, at this place where they're really being cared for. And she's like, that's just not like what I'm from. That's not what I'm used to. And understand for a church that's trying to I mean for the church in mass, that's trying to actually be more pertinent to the world around. The weird part is for her, because it was so different, it drew her to want to know more. If we're actually more like heaven and less like earth, people will be intrigued by that. And they'll want to know more. If we're just like them, because then we're their buddies, well, they won't think we have anything they don't. 
But not just that, his cupbearers. Now, cupbearer, by the way, are the guys who can identify danger. They're the ones who not only just bring the cups, but they taste the wine first because if there's any poison, well, then they're going to die and the king's going to be okay. Rough job. I mean, you get to drink a lot of wine. Not something I'm enormously fond of anyways. But if you get the bad stuff, you, you know, your career is done the moment you die. Uh, but the good news is the king lives. And, and, and the reason I say that is if we were to look at it from our own stake, it's like, are we in a place where we can identify the dangers to our own soul? I mean, if we make wise choices, if we're actually given wisdom to make wise choices and we make a bad choice, it's only, one, it's only for one of two reasons. One, out of ignorance, we didn't realize that thing was bad. Or two, out of disobedience. But if we can't identify a danger and avoid it, well, that would be a really cool thing to watch. And this is, and, But the last of the one is the one that really gets me. And his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord. That he had a straight shot to God. There was like a hallway, if you will, between Solomon's house and God's house. He didn't want it to be far. And to me, that reminds me of his dad, David. And the queen looks and she sees, wow, look at the choices this guy's making. And look at his home life. And look at how his appetites are fully met. And look at how he values what the world wouldn't value. He values every human being. And in the eyes of the world, the servant was the lowest. And he's like, he t- even puts value in the lowest of human beings. There is a lovely, wonderful sister of Christ who goes and goes to the prisons every week in our fellowship. And she does so with complete joy of service to a group of people that many overlook and see as less than human beings. And I love the inspiration she brings for that. And the idea that we view every human being as important. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter where you're at. God still values you. Jesus still died for you. And then they see him having this place where he's got this checks and balances and to make sure that he's not going to just be sucking down poison. And you watch somebody watch you and they watch how you react to the goofy people on TV that call themselves Christians. Now, whether they are or not, I can't tell you. But some of those people are such a whack job, I don't even know what in the world's going on with them. The only thing I can applaud them for is fantastic creativity. I'm like, wow, how you got that out of something you think came from Scripture when it's so clearly opposite? I I don't even know how you got there. But she watches this stuff and people are going to watch you. How do you react to that person? Do you act with grace but with sincerity about realizing that a poison's a poison? But then she's like, look at the way, how does he got how does this guy get all of this? And then she sees that this guy has a straight hallway from between his house and God's house. You know what it says? There was nothing between them, and therefore there was no spirit in her. The idea of that spirit, by the way, ruach is the word for breath or wind as well. You kind of get the idea, it's like it kind of like it took her breath away. She like watched this. She was staring. And as she was staring, she's like, look at this guy and the decisions he makes. Look at his house. Look at the people who serve and how he honors every human being. Look at how he clearly identifies the dangers around him. And he sees them for what they really are. He's not playing games with that. And look at the way that this guy runs to God. Wow. Takes my breath away. You know what her response is? Look at verse 6. So she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about, notice, your words and your wisdom. Do you know what drew her? was his wisdom. 
We're going to see that change before this is done, before the chapter is done, in regards to what he becomes famous for. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw it with my own eyes, and indeed the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceeded the fame of which I heard. Happy are the men, and happy are these your servants. Happy are your men, and happy are these your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. And blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you. Could you imagine she sees a God delight in a human being? And she says, you know, that God of yours must be so blessed by you, buddy. The people who serve you must be so blessed. They must be so happy. The men who stand with you, they must be so happy just to be with you. I'll tell you, because God clearly, your God delights in people and he clearly delights in you. Look at how he set you on the throne of Israel. You know why he set you on the throne of Israel? Notice what else she discovers. Because the Lord has loved Israel forever. You know, the two things she discovers about this God, our God, is a God who delights in people and loves his own. How is that for a cool place to start? Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. Oh, my goodness. What she discovers because she sees the decisions he makes, his home life, sees the way that we honor human beings and the way that we have the straight shot with God. Nothing between us. Jesus, the one thing that draws us, our sin completely removed. We have a straight shot. And people, when they look at our life, and if they were to see that, they'd be like, wow, your God clearly seems like he likes you. He delights in you. And boy, he seems like he really loves you. Well, verse 10, it says, then she gave the king 120 talents of gold. And you're like, wow, 120 talents. And that's probably as far as you go with it, right? Well, let me put things into perspective. <clears throat> Forgive me for the math. I'll do it quick because it's not the point, but I wanted you to get the idea. <clears throat> Talent is, in the simplest sense, 34.2 kilograms, or if you will, roughly 75 pounds. Now, gold right now, as of this week, is roughly 31 pounds a gram, which means you have to multiply that by a kilogram. That's 100. And then you have to multiply it by 34.2 which means that every talent of gold is worth 106,020 pounds. 106,020 pounds a talent, and she gave him 120 talents. In other words, this gal, this queen of Shiva, whips out 127,224,000 worth in gold at the current price and goes, here you go, have some gold. And it says, not only did she give him that, but she gave him spices in great quantity, precious stones. There never again gave such abundance, and we'll see that a couple times in this. There, you'll never see that again. That never again such abundance of spices as the Queen of Shiva gave to King Solomon. Now, up to this point, it's just kind of cool. Check it out. She just whipped out tons and tons of gold and said, have it. Solomon's like, okay. But there's a problem. Listen to these verses. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 17. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, God knows that Israel is going to ask for a king and they're going to do it in essence to replace the living God as their king for one they can touch and hear and smell and feel. And he says, the guy's going to have to be Jewish. And he's going to have to be the one I pick. You can't just decide on a guy. But when he, is, when he does become king, 
Deuteronomy 17, verse 16 says, and hear me, there's three things. He shall not multiply horses. Can you say horses? Thank you. Come on, give me a little oomph. He shall not multiply, thank you, for himself, nor, listen, cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Because the Lord has said to you, don't go that way again. Shall not go that way again. So what's the first thing he's not to multiply? Horses. You guys are getting this, right? Listen to the second one, verse 17. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself. What's the second one? What's the first one? What's the second one? Where would you go to get those? Where shouldn't you go to get horses? Egypt. Yeah, not a good idea. He says, listen, neither shall they multiply wives for themselves, lest they turn his heart away. Third, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. So what's the third one? What's the first one? Horses. What's the second one? What's the third? There's your three-strike policy. Don't multiply. Why would you not multiply horses? Because God's your security, and what you're doing is you're replacing God's security with your own. That doesn't mean you don't get an alarm for your house or your car, and it doesn't mean you don't lock your doors. What it does mean, though, in the end of it all, is that your security has to be in Him. And your passion. Not just your power, like horses, but your passion. God says, I want your passion. Don't just start running it over with everyone you can gather. And also, your possessions. I don't want you to find comfort and hope in your abundance of stuff. Jesus would say that the sum of one's life is not accredited by the things he possesses. Now it says this. Now hear me. In verse 18 of that same chapter, Deuteronomy 17, it says, instead of all that, it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of the book from before the priests, the Levites, and it shall be with him. He shall read it all the days of his life for two primary reasons. One, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. And second, that he be careful to observe all the words of the law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren. That he would not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or the left to prolong his days in his kingdom, in, in his kingdom, and his children in the midst of Israel. He goes, look at instead of getting a bunch of horses or going to Israel to get them even worse, I'm sorry, going to Egypt to get them uh, even worse, going and getting a bunch of women or going and getting a bunch of gold and silver, he goes, instead, I want you to find the treasure in the word. And I want you to read it. And I want you to find the protection in studying that book. And as you study that book, learn to fear me. Not fear me like be afraid of me, but rather revere me. And then in that, trust me that I'm bigger than you and that's a good thing. And then with that, don't surround yourself, don't just amass women because I want your passion. Now, now that you know that warning, we'll realize that the next two chapters, chapter the, the remainder of chapter 10 and chapter 11 are going to show Solomon strike out. Three strikes. What were those three strikes? What was the first thing he was not to amass? Horses. What was the second? And what was the third? Gold and silver. Okay, well, look at verse 12. Actually, verse 11. Also, the ships of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir. Now, I mean, he just got tons of gold from the queen of Shiva. Brought great quantities of almug wood, precious stones from Ophir. And the king made steps of the Almagwood, for the house of the Lord and for the king's house. 
Also harps and stringed instruments for singers. There never again came such a... Remember, oh, you'll never see this kind of wood again like there has been that day. Now, it's interesting that he's building steps not only for the Lord's house, but his own with this. Now, what you start seeing is Solomon, every time Solomon gets something really, really good, he shares it with God. He's like, yep, that's, this is your part and this is my part. Verse 13. Now, King Solomon gave the Queen of Shiva all she desired, whatever she asked, besides what Solomon had given her according to the royal generosity. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. Now, don't miss this. This is a really important verse for you at least to know. It says, according to not just the king's generosity, in other words, you came and visited the king and gave you a gift. You got a parting gift. You know, that was really nice of him. But the queen of Shiva, she came from a great distance and he blesses her. If you ask those in Ethiopia what it meant that he gave her all she desired, they have two answers for you. One is, he gave her the Ark of the Covenant. Scripture does not say that. But there are those in Ethiopia who actually say that they have the Ark of the Covenant in a basement. Well, anyways, it's kind of like Area 52 or whatever, but for the Ark. The second, funny, because I don't remember the Raiders of the Lost Ark or Indiana Jones ever going to Ethiopia. Anyways, the second is he gave her everything she wanted and she came back with the one thing she really wanted. Does anyone want to guess what that other thing is? A baby. Now, by the time we get to the next chapter, it's certainly not outside of the scope of Solomon's accomplishments. But the Bible does not tell us that either. But there's a whole group of people that say they're direct descendants of Israel because he gave her everything she wanted and she kind of looked and said, you are so wise, we need to have a baby together. Anyways, at least know that people say that for what it's worth. It's really not the point, but at least I thought I'd let you know that. Now, let's get to those. Remember those three strikes? What was the king of Israel not to amass? What was the first thing? Horses, and especially not from Egypt. Second one was? And the third one? Gold and silver. Verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 14. The weight of the gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. Don't you find that a little weird that it's 666? Anyways, yeah. You don't find that but a couple places in Scripture, and here's one of them. Uh, by the way, for what that's worth, that's set roughly 70,609,320 pounds annually. That's a lot of gold. Now, the issue isn't are you getting gold. The question is what you're doing with it. Amassing it means that you're just storing it, but you have no real use for it. Does that make sense? Do you remember when Jesus gave us the parable about the guy who had way too much stuff? And what he said was, well, the problem is I don't have enough places to store it. I just need to get big. I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Because the issue isn't sharing. The issue isn't blessing someone with it. Instead, why don't I instead just build bigger things? I need a bigger storage bin. You know, a self-storage. And, you know, I don't know. I don't store myself in a self-storage. But, uh, you know, and oh, I have more stuff. I need to get more. And, and God says, but that night, God said, you fool. How many times in Scripture does God turn to someone and go, you fool? Because tonight your life's going to be required of you. What good is this stuff for you when you're dead? How is this in any way going to impact your legacy? The stuff you get now, how is that somehow, how is that in any way going to affect the people you really love. How is this going to in any way mean anything when you stand in front of God in heaven? For eternity, you will be without that stuff 
and you won't even have anything to say for it, nothing to show for it. Well, unfortunately, this is the problem when we start, and again, the idea of amassing. It says, besides that 666 talents of gold, besides that, for the traveling merchants that came um, from the income of traders that came from the kings of Arabia and the governors of that country, the king made two, this is what he does with the gold now. And King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. Now, you get the idea. Now, does, does anyone know how, like, as far as gold, is it heavy or is it light? Does anyone know? It's actually rather heavy. It's so heavy that it isn't strong enough to even hold. If you, like, if you took a bar of it like this, it would start to cave if it was just gold because the weight of it isn't strong enough to hold it up. It's rather heavy. And it tells us here, now, what happens? Now, in other words, do you really want to make shields of solid gold? If you're making shields of solid gold, what does that tell you about the shields? They're probably never going to go to battle. First of all, who brings gold into battle? You know what I'm saying? You know, it's like, it's like if you were going to go and you were going to get a fight with someone that's probably going to want to steal everything you have, you probably aren't going to bring your best stuff with you. And what this tells us is that Solomon feels so secure at this moment and he's got all this gold and he doesn't know what to do with it. Instead of doing something that could bless, I don't know, the people that he's serving, you know, instead of that, he's turning them into something to display so that people could go to, the, to, the, to his place and it's like, check out the king's diamonds, you know, check out the crown jewels. Check this out, man. Look at the gold shields that we're never going to, you know, that no one's ever going to take them to battle. And it tells us, by the way, notice the King Solomon made 200 of these large shields of hammered gold, 600 shekels of gold, well, 600 of gold, went into each shield. Now we're actually talking about 42 million of it being spent on gold shields. Now, those are huge, heavy shields. Each one's worth 212 grand. Verse 17, he also made 300 shields of hammered gold that have three minas of gold, went into each one, and you're like, oh, a mina. A mina is 570 grams. That could give you an idea. Now, in essence, roughly a little more than half a kilo, right? The king put him in the house of the force of Lebanon. So now he has each shield there is worth 53 grand. So he's got another 15, almost 16 million worth with these 300 shields. Between just his shields alone, to give you an idea, he's got over 61 million pounds invested in shields. Shields! Check out my shields that I'm never going to take into battle. These, I mean, it's like, so when you're, hear me on this, when your shield becomes a decoration, you know you're in trouble. Now, according to, and I'm going to, you know, you're Bible students, you're here on a Tuesday night. According to the armor of God, what is your shield? Excellent. It's the shield of faith. What happens when the shield of faith is so far from the battleground, so far from that, that now it's just decoration? Well, you're not moving forward in your walk anymore. Does that make sense? I mean, our faith demands us to walk forward with the Lord. And when we just say, check it out, let me tell you about the greatest moments of my faith. The moment that all the things you can talk about that God does or has done are in the past, you might want to check your present. 
And we talk about a movement becoming a monument. And it's fairly simple. Because once it becomes a monument, sooner or later it becomes a mortuary. You look back and you're like, oh, look at these great moments. I wrote a song once because I was inspired by a person that when I first started studying the word, they seemed like they were so on fire for the Lord because they seemed like they had so much understanding of the Lord and they had so much knowledge. And I watched them never progress. They kind of felt like that was good enough for them. The song was called Standing Man. And the whole idea of the song was, is that aren't we supposed to run this race to win it? What are you doing standing, man? And I just remember one of the lines that always seems to haunt me is you talk of miracles and the grandest memories, but is it just to mask the silence recently? And it's the whole idea is like, man, if all we could talk about are the great things God has done, man, let's get back into the battle and start walking forward. Well, our king here now, all of this gold that he has that's extra, it's just now becoming decoration for shields. Moreover, verse 17, the king made a great throne of ivory. Now, is anyone familiar with, where do you get ivory? Does anyone know? The tusks of elephants, yeah. That's quite a bit of carving there. Notice, by the way, now he's investing in his own throne. And overlaid it, by the way, if you had a throne of ivory, would you cover it in gold? Well, why does he cover it in gold? Because he's got so much gold, he's got to do something with it, right? Now, you're probably aware of the fact gold is not full of traction either. When it's real pure pounded gold, you're going to slip on this in a good rainy day. And the only reason I say that must be really funny when it's becoming now the throne. He had six steps, like the 666 of gold, and on the top of the, the throne, it was rounded back, there were armrests on either side of the place of the seat. Two lions stood at the armrests. Twelve lions stood there, one on each side. There's six steps. So if it says... Uh, nothing like this has been made for any other kingdom. You'll never see this anywhere else. So you go and approach this throne. It's ivory, so that's a whole lot of elephants without their tusks. And then the whole thing's covered in gold. And if you're looking at it, there's like a step and two lions, one on each side, then the next step and two more lions, and the next step with two more lions, and the next step with two more lions, six of those. And at the top, there is the king with his hands on his armrest as if he's petting two lions himself. Wow. And imagine, it's like the writer is going, you don't see this even in the craziest of kingdoms. And by the way, there are some crazy thrones out there. There are some whack things out there. And he goes, but you've never seen anything like this. And by the way, and you know this, because once you get to this place where you have all this money and you have all this time, do you need the inevitable product of too much money and too much time is? completely discontented boredom. You get to this place where you're like, nothing's going to make me happy now. And unfortunately, it becomes the signs of a wandering king. What's crazy is, is we started this whole thing with a hungering queen. She wanted to know and she got there. And we're ending this thing with a wandering king. Well, it says... Oh boy. But I remind you, it tells us. Remember how he was supposed to read the text? He was supposed to write a copy of the law and he was supposed to read it every day. The king was back in Deuteronomy 17. Do you remember the reasons why? The first was that he would know or learn how to fear the Lord. But do you remember why the second reason he was to read the word all over and over again? Was that his heart would not be lifted above his brethren. 
And now all of a sudden, Solomon's built this big throne surrounded by a pack of lions. And he's sitting at the top of this ivory tower, if you will, covered in gold with his armrest just saying, yes. And it's like you get the idea. Solomon's getting a bit lifted. And it'll happen to you, by the way, as well. And me. We are in one of the richest countries in the world. This was the one country that when we ever went on a mission trip, I was most concerned about. Because it's the one place where the dollar is worse. But it's close enough so that you think it basically transfers one for one until you get the bills and you're like, oh my goodness, we spent so much. And I look at that and it's like, you see guys out there and it's like, I had a guy that was chasing me with a cup. And in his cup, he's like, I don't have any money. And in his cup, it was full of pound coins. Now, I'm like, what do you need it for? He's like, I only need a couple pounds for a cup of coffee. I'm like, your cup's full of pounds. He's like, no, those don't count. <laughs> Anyways, and, and I'm like, to who? Like, you went into Costco and they're like, sorry, we won't take those? You know? And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to say is we get to this place where we have so much stuff that we amass it and somehow it turns our heart away from the Lord because we're discontented. But it's not because that we don't have enough stuff. It's because somehow it started, it's, it cut in on my dance with God and it's now trying to lead me in the dance. And it's going to step on my feet with every step. Well, what else do you do with gold? Verse 21, King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold. All the vessels of the house of the force of Lebanon were pure gold. I mean, after all, when you've got that much gold, what do you do with it? You make shields and flatware. Not one was silver. This was accounted as nothing in the days of Solomon. Imagine that. For the king had merchant ships at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the merchant ships came bringing gold, silver, ivory, and apes and monkeys. Now that definitely tells you that Solomon at this point is really in need of entertainment. Go get me some monkeys. Notice what it says in verse 23. So King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in, what's the first thing you notice there? Riches. Remember how he was known for his wisdom? Now it says the king surpassed all the kings in riches and wisdom. Now all of a sudden, Solomon's not just known for his wisdom anymore. Something else gets to the top, Bill. Solomon's known as being the richest king on earth. And all the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God put on his heart. Each man brought presents, you would expect, articles of silver, gold garments, armor, spices, horses, and mules, and is separate year by year. Would you safely say Solomon is amassing gold at this point? He's amassing so much gold that he's turning it into bowls and cups. And at this point, silver is rubbish to him. It's like, I don't want dumb silver. I want to do that. He's got, you know, I mean, his throne that was of ivory as they're covering. Solomon noticed verse 26. Now, what are the three things that a king's not to amass? What was the first one? Horses. What was the second? Lions. And what was the third? Silver and gold. We can then see at this point he's amassed silver and gold. Verse 26. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king of Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. Now, have you been to Jerusalem here? Anyone been to Israel? 
What's the one thing Israel grows better than anything else? Rock. There's rocks everywhere. And actually, it'd be one thing, I mean, what would we have here? It would almost be like saying that, you know, silver was as common as pigeons, you know? I mean, it's like, you get the idea. It's like, stone is everywhere. It's the one thing that Israel says, if you want a, if you, if you want a, uh, a, a souvenir, grab a big rock and take it home with you. Uh, and the reason I say that is, it's like silver was, I mean, gold was so abundant, so much more than he needed, that silver was meaningless to him now. It was as common as stone. And he made the cedar trees as abundant as the sycamores in the lowland. Verse 28. Solomon had horses imported from where? Oh, some of you smell that one, huh? Okay. Now, what's the first thing a king's not supposed to amass? Horses, especially not from Egypt. Yeah. And Solomon had horses imported from Solomon and Kavet. And the king's merchants brought them in Kavet at the current price. Okay. So he's bought them at market price. Now, even gives us the cost. The chariot that was imported from Egypt cost 600 shekels of silver. The shekel, by the way, is 11.4 grams um, or 4 ounces. Currently, silver is, is basically 40 pence a gram, which means he's paying 2,736 pounds per chariot. Uh, give you an idea. And he bought a horse for 150. Well, so he's paying 684 pounds per horse. And where is he buying them from? Egypt. Okay, so don't amass horses, and especially don't go to Egypt for them. What's the second one? Lives. Lives, and what was the third? Yes, yeah, silver and gold. Now, he's, now, in regards to, so which one has he yet to amass according to this chapter? Lives. And remember what God said would happen if he did? If he did amass wives, they would turn his heart away from them. Well, it says, and thus, Again, through their agents, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. You know what Solomon's doing? Is he's not only amassing horses, but he's buying them and then marking up the price and selling them to people who will ultimately become his enemies. Oh, it's always good to hand nukes, by the way, to guys that want to blow you up. That's always a great idea. Oddly enough, by the way, the two countries that have the most history of that are the United States and the United Kingdom. Yeah, yay us. Okay, now, here's the point of it. At the end of this chapter, we leave now with a weird feeling, right? Because two of the three things are clearly Solomon's transgressed. And the only one left is gathering women. Oh, wait till you get to the next chapter. And what we're going to find is, is that, I mean, I want to remind you, Israel has at its very best in regards to it's the most rich it's ever been, it's the most safe it's ever been. It's the largest it's ever been. It's the most influential in the world it's ever been. As far as the kingdom has gone, Israel is at its apex. It is now a nova in the sight of everyone else. And yet, the king himself, in that place, his heart doesn't belong to the Lord like it should. And I want to remind you, I want to remind you God said... Look, I want all of your heart, Solomon. Don't just give me some of it. Because if you give me some of it, these are the three things that are going to take you away from it. And if these three things can influence you. You know what's interesting? First John tells us that the ingredients of the world are only threefold. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Those are the three things. And he tells us that the good news is all of the lusts of this world are going to perish with this world. And that's great news. 
Now when you think about the enemy coming after Jesus, I'll go back before that, when Eve was in the garden and the enemy showed her the fruit, or however that was on that airplane, it tells us that she saw the fruit was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise. Good for food, lust of the flesh, pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes, desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. Did you get that? It's interesting because two of those three things existed before that. Every tree and fruit that God made was pleasant to the eyes and good for food. But it wasn't a lust because a lust is an appetite that you try to fulfill outside of God's mandated way to fulfill it. In other words, God gives you an appetite, He gives you a menu. You order something off the menu, that's a lust. When the enemy came at Jesus, remember in the temptation, how many times did he, or how many different things are recorded that he came after Jesus with? Bread. Kingdom. Bread, the kingdoms, and. Throw yourself off the temple. Let the angels catch you. That's what it says, right? Back in Psalm 90. It says, you know, that the angels watch over you. You'll never even dash your foot against the stone. Hey, how many of you know the enemy knows how to quote scripture? Just out of context. Now, turn your stones to bread. What's that? Lust of the flesh. His body wants it, but the Father isn't giving it to him. Kingdoms. What are kingdoms made of? If he showed him all the kingdoms of the earth, did he show him the United Kingdom? Is that a kingdom? Clearly, we, it's in our title. If he showed him all the kingdoms of the earth, he showed him this one. And if he showed him this one, he showed him you. What's the one thing God would, that Jesus would see that he would want? You. And you know what? The enemy knows that better than you do. But, he wasn't going to take it unless but the Father gave it. Throw yourself off the temple. What's that? Pride of life. Because that show off. Let him catch it. You get that? The three things a king's not supposed to amass. Not to amass. What was the first one? Horses. We're going to go backwards. That's the pride of life. Look at how you have all of this kingdom now and all this protection. Look at how big your armies. How about wives? What's that? The lust of the flesh. What about gold? That's the lust of the eyes. Do you see? All three things still play out. He goes, I don't want those things taking you away from me, Solomon. Can I say for you too? I don't want those things taking you away from God either. Aren't you thankful that Jesus said no to any of those and all of those temptations? Now, I don't know what it is that you see that you want that God's not giving you right now. But which of those are you going to surrender? Is your heart the Lord's, or are you going to chase after this thing? I don't know what it is that your flesh craves that that isn't on God's menu. I can tell you this. Choose God. I don't know what it is that you think makes you more important that God's not giving. But if God doesn't give it, you don't want it. All good things come from the Father in heaven lights, from whom there's no shadow of turning. And it tells us in Psalm before that nothing, no good gift will he refrain or keep from those who walk away from And you're like, well, why am I not having this thing? Well, maybe right now it's not a good gift. Maybe it will be later. Maybe it won't be ever. But one thing's for sure. If it's a good gift and you're walking with it, okay. Solomon is taking his eyes and sadly enough worse yet, his heart 
off the Lord than as he is. It's starting to manifest. These three things are waiting to bury you. I'm here to tell you that Jesus took those things and he nailed them to the cross and he let them be buried with him. And when he rose again, he showed us complete and utter victory. Now, Jesus said no to those things completely because had he said yes to one of them, he wouldn't be qualified to be our, our sacrifice. But when he died on the cross, those things were paid for. Do you want to run back to him? I'll be honest, it's probably a part of every one of us that wants to run back, but we just know better. Learn from Solomon. Because the legacy of Solomon will be a divided kingdom because his heart was divided. I don't know what that said of you or me. Tonight is a night to totally dedicate, to do something crazy. Let's say, God, conquer those things. Conquer them in my heart so that my heart craves you like I would crave these horrible things that you haven't given me. And you won't give them to me because they're bad for me. Because if Jesus offers us this new life, we should walk in it. Will you pray with me? Lord, we learn so much from this chapter. When we start this chapter with a hungering queen, a queen that's hungry and for, for the wisdom that Solomon possesses, and she goes there and she sees it. She sees a kingdom that is functioning and honors the servants and knows when a poison's a poison. She sees that nothing is in between the king and their God. And she sees a God that is blessed by his people and loves them. Oh, that the world would see that when they inspect our lives. When they see the choices we make. When they see that the hungers that are within us are met in you. So we don't choose after these lusts that would be to our downfall like they will be for Solomon. Conquer them, God. We give you permission to search, season, zoom, remove the passions in our heart that don't belong to you, that are in essence in enmity with you. God, conquer those tonight that we would walk out of here with a pure heart and love you like we should. God, I pray that however it is, we would be chasing after the horses. Those things that somehow make us more proud. Tonight, God, resolve it in our hearts to let it go. And tonight, those things, God, that bid for our passion, suitors to our heart that do not belong, Lord, remove them. That our hearts be completely yours. That the overflow of our love for you would cause us to love other people. That we wouldn't go chasing after love from people who are ill-equipped to give. But rather find love in the endless thought that you are, God, as you are love. And then from that abundance, love others. And God, that we would not be in this place where we would seek to amass those things, Lord, that our eyes just constantly see and want that our eyes would be on you. And there we would crave. And there the the appetite would be met. So God, please tonight, rectify that in our hearts and then resolve it. So we give ourselves a fresh and new to you, Jesus. In your name. Amen. Amen.